0: There's a paradox that I have uh, observed. In a more authoritarian system, few people criticize the government, but few people believe the government. In a democracy, many people criticize the government, and many people also believe the government. My chance to go watch in China, we play pay-
1: Happy belated new year to everyone. First off, I just want to say how grateful I am to all of you listening out there for your support. Over the past year, listenership per episode has grown from 2,000 to 4,000, which I know has only happened through word of mouth. I'm looking forward to a new year filled with shows on industrial policy, local legislatures, architecture, by Joe, and tons more. And the next time you see a friend who you think might like this show, don't just tell them about it, grab their phone and subscribe for them. So finally, I want to correct the record from last week's episode. In four months, I am turning 30, not 40. How does a bookish Beijing teenager who found himself stuck spending six years planting potatoes in the Gobi grow up to study with Janet Yellen, teach at Wharton, and now lead one of Asia's most successful investment firms? Wei Jian Shan recounts his personal history in his recent memoir, Out of the Gobi, My Story of China in America. As one Doban review describes it, the book is a long, torturous, and rapid stream of his first 40 years. Wei Jian Shan is this chairman and CEO of PAG Group. We also have with us today longtime guest host Athena Cao. She's an investment analyst based in Beijing. Mr. Shan, welcome to China Econ Talk.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first off, I just want to say thank you for
1: writing this book. Um, this is clearly a very personal book, and it's a, certainly a hard time in your, in your life. So I appreciate you sharing your um, your and your generation story.
0: To me, it's not so personal. It's not autobiography. It's memoir. And the purpose of writing this book is really to tell part of Chinese modern history, which I think is very important, sure. which I and my peers and people of my generation lived through. So it's basically an eyewitness account of that part of the history. Initially, the book ended, my first manuscript, in 1975 when I got out of the Gobi, but my publisher said, oh, no, 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 the <laughs> readers would like to know what happened to you afterwards. And the reason I ended the book in 1975 was because I thought that part of the history was more important than anything else. It's sure. not about myself. It's about really history. But from personal perspective, the history, I suppose, is more vivid because it's how we lived through it. Sure.
2: Yeah, exactly. So today is even more important because a lot of people would come out to say, you know, that is history. We're going to let time do the judgment. We cannot pick a side. So that kind of sentiment is really hard for, for us who, who haven't lived through it to understand. Um, so for you to come out with such a personal story and from such a factual perspective is really important.
0: long time ago, about 40 years ago, the party made the resolution calling the Cultural Revolution, a catastrophe. Hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, died during that period of time. Many people starved. All the schools were closed. I was out of school for 10 years. I have never attended secondary school. Probably I'm the only person you have ever interviewed who have not attended secondary school. So the party's conclusion uh, officially I think it's not too dissimilar to what we know. But uh, in more modern times or more recent times, I, I suppose the party just chooses not to talk about it anymore because I suppose it's not a glorious part of the history.
2: One of the 18 million youth who participated in Shenzhen is today's chairman of China. So the party line does depict this era as these glorious years that really built endurance in new China's backbone. How do you feel about that line?
0: First, a slight correction. I think 16 million people were sent to the countryside during that period of time. Hmm. That represented about 12% of China's urban population in 1969. And uh, that was the biggest de-urbanization process in human history. I think that everything has two sides, but I think by and large, it was a disaster. It was total waste of human talents and resources. It's total waste of resources, period.
1: So you write that you don't believe what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Aside from wasting human resources and time, what other legacies did that era hold for your generation?
0: Let, Let me just give you some example. During that period of time, in 10 years, almost all books were banned. Reading was frowned upon, so when I was in the Gobi, spending six years toiling in the fields, doing hard labor together with my peers, I was able to read some books in hiding. But most of my peers, after working 12, 14, 16 hours a day, didn't study. And in fact, it was not only physical energy and interest, it was not permitted, by and large, to read books. So after 10 years without education, when we came out of the Gobi, when we got into a new society, China changed after 1978 when Deng Xiaoping came back to power. Most of my peers were never able to find a decent job because they never acquired the necessary knowledge and skills. So most of my friends, I have to tell you, continue to live in relative poverty today. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write this book when I was a professor at the Wharton School. And then we had our daughter, second uh, <laughs> child, and I became too busy. Teaching was very heavy and uh, research was very heavy. So I shelved the project. I never forgot it. I always thought that this is a very important part of the history in China, and I write it so that people can remember it, so that the history of that type will not be repeated.
1: You know, the way you articulate that is very similar to the rhetoric I heard growing up talking about the Holocaust. My um, uncle's mother was a survivor, and it took her decades to process and ultimately write her own memoir. So discussing these topics can still be seen as taboo.
0: Taboo, I suppose, because it was so painful. Yeah. And in our particular case, we got out of it and uh, we survived. I think I survived better than most of my peers. But again, I think that uh, many people, especially younger generation, who didn't live through that period of history, simply do not have enough knowledge of what happened. Younger people hear from their parents what happened, and bits piece and pieces. There are not too many people from my generation who could write a book like this because we're not educated. Yeah. So I thought it was my duty to write it down. And in fact, I'm in the process of putting it into Chinese so that there will be more of an audience, more of a readership for the book. Hmm.
2: My parents are five to ten years younger than you, so they didn't participate in the movement. But... Just from seeing other relatives who did live through that era, it seems like that generation are not so good at communicating their emotions.
0: Yeah, well, there's not too much to talk about. You know, it's not something that we are very proud of to tell the children, and uh, most of the children don't really care so much if you just tell them bits piece and pieces when. My children were very little. I kept telling them the hardships that we lived lived through. Eventually they said, oh yes, we know, we know, (laughs) time has changed. (laughs) I tried to tell the story from the perspective of who I was at that time. As a teenager, the cultural revolution started when I was 12. I was about to graduate from primary school. And I was very happy initially when the school was shut. But I didn't know it was going to be shot for 10 years. So I hope it's vivid enough. I provided historical background, not only in China, but worldwide, in front of each chapters, and the idea is to situate the reader, especially Western reader, into a historical context.
2: Several of the very inspirational characters of your friends who Hmm. really stuck it out and really showed extraordinary leadership at such young age despite the very harsh surroundings. Um, but I imagine most of your peers didn't have such positive sentiments at the time.
0: I suppose the better way to describe it is everybody's resigned mm. to our life over there. We were told when we got to the Gobi that we should Take root in the Gobi and spend the rest of her lives uh, over there. So there was no hope of getting out. It is the sense of despair, the sense that, the sense of hopelessness, the sense that you will have to spend the rest of your lives here in this God place, you know, Gobi is so desolate. That really makes it uh, uh, very hard. But so was the fate. You were sent over there and there was nothing that you could do about it. So we didn't spend our time being miserable every day, being sad every day. We tried to entertain ourselves, try to encourage each other, try to help each other. That's more important. How many times, I don't remember, my friends helped me when I was really in difficult situations, sometimes giving me some food sometimes giving me a piece of clothes when it was very cold. So we really built a very strong bond, which has lasted to this day. You
1: know, it's interesting. We were in the early uh, generations founding. Israel were also going to a desert and trying to farm. Um, But, you know, obvious differences in that it was voluntary. Um, And it was, uh, I think, like the 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 level of of commitment to the ideology was was uh, was much stronger and also just like the amount of freedom that um, the, the the young people had
0: yes in that time if you think about it the early emigrants to Israel many of them had socialistic ideals totally. especially those from Eastern Europe especially those from Russia and the difference between kibbutz and the people's commune is that For the people's commune, it was mandatory. Yeah. And for caboose, it was voluntary. I mean, you're free to leave, and you're also free to live there.
1: Right. So You get some market forces in action, right? Right, right. But with your feet.
0: And with the freedom, and you don't feel bad at all. In the Middle East, by and large, it used to be fertile, part of the fertile crescent. And the land now has turned into desert, but it's not particularly salty. It's not uh, you know, mixed in the soil is not mixed with uh, salt and alkali. That's a killer for crops. But in the gobi in, in the Mongolia, it's mostly the salt and alkali that make it very, very difficult to grow crops. Now in the Gobi Desert, what do you think that people can do to improve their lot? Uh, there's very little. I had thought it was not possible to because you can't farm <laughs> you know, in the Gobi Desert But in more recent years, I've seen at least three examples of how people tried to improve their livelihood. I discovered that they built a golf course in the desert. And there are more sand traps (laughs) on that (laughs) golf course than anywhere else in the world, right? as you can imagine. And I also noticed that somebody built a... Space station, simulated space station, because you come out, it's like on the Mars, right? (laughs) So you would get that uh, particular experience. It became a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. And yesterday I was having dinner with somebody who was building a data center to house network clouds uh, in a joint venture with Amazon in the Gobi. So I said, why in the Gobi? Because there's wind power, there's solar power, so energy is cheaper and it's cold, uh, much colder than southern part of China, and therefore cooling <laughs> requires less energy. So you know, people have figured out different ways to develop even the Gobi today. Yeah. <laughs> the point is that if you allow them to do what they like to do, then it's good for them, it's good for the economy.
1: Speaking of party lines, the other one is, You know, without the party, there's no modern China.
0: Well, leadership, obviously, is very important. When the leadership is wrong, then, obviously, the nation was not getting anywhere. But fundamentally, of course, it is the people who drive, I believe, history as well as their own life, right? But you have to give them attitude. You have to give them the freedom to do so.
2: Could you talk about how it ended up working out for the majority of your cohort in the Gobi?
0: Probably more than 90% still live at the bottom of the society, Mm. not necessarily poverty, but of course among the lowest income families. And I would say maybe a couple of percentage of us eventually did anything, meaning really improved our life after that experience. Those who didn't give up studying typically did much better. Education is everything. I mean, think about it. If you had never been to secondary school, even in advanced country, a developed country like the United States or anywhere in Europe, if somebody just had a primary education, how far can you get in society? You can get a manufacturing job, perhaps. But if there is any shift in the growth model that is away from manufacturing to consumption, and typically is the least educated who have no mobility.
2: So one key development was that the party ended up using an election model to decide who gets to go to college, which ended up being your ticket out. Why do you think the party would use such democratic concept?
0: It's not entirely a democratic <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I think Mao had this idea for many years, even before the Cultural Revolution, that uh, the exam system was not necessarily fair. And he described the exam system as surprise attack on students. And he gave examples of how successful emperors in Chinese history didn't necessarily get a good education. Those very well-read emperors, uh, <laughs> were not so successful, so he had this idea that uh, you should get some practical experience and uh, then the multitude uh the masses would be able to recognize talents and recommend uh you know talents to to colleges and that was very ideal uh, in practice of course it didn't really work at all so back in I think seventy four uh we started to have this uh, system of recommending students to college when college uh, resumed. It was the year I think Deng Xiaoping was brought back to power. And uh, so the idea is that uh, wherever you work, the people around you would select you know, who should go to college. In practice, I would say in the vast majority of the cases, it was the bosses who decided. And therefore, backdoor connection, you know, whether or not bosses are like you uh, would make a difference. In our particular place, we were eventually lucky. Initially, it was the same way that the bosses picked uh, the candidates. We uh, revolted a little bit, and eventually the leadership deferred to a system that was uh, we were able to cast votes. So fast
1: forward a few years, um, you go to a uh, university in China, end up um, uh, getting selected to
0: on a scholarship to move to the U.S., study. I, I took exams <laughs> and that's how I was selected, yeah.
2: So when I moved to the U.S. For the, fir- for the first year as an exchange student. Which year? Um, 2010. Mm. So in 2010, I set foot in America for the first time. And I had a host family because I was a, I was an exchange student. My host mom looked at me and said, you're so skinny. Mm. Were they starving you in China? <laughs> so I think she got this idea from your generation because when, when you guys moved to the U.S., you were indeed starved. Um, but today, these kind of stereotypes aren't so much true anymore. So what what do you think are some of the important stereotypes that no longer hold true today?
0: Well, I suppose with uh, so many exchange programs since uh, about 40 years ago, by the way, this year is the 40th anniversary of the establishment of formal diplomatic relationship between China and the United States. So at the time when I first went to America, I remember people telling me that to tell children to eat, they would say, "Think mm. about the starving people in China." Yeah. <laughs> so in fact, there's a, actually it was not stereotype; <laughs> it was quite true in many parts of China, including for ourselves working in the Gobi, we did starve. But of course, you know, China has changed a great deal. You know, at the time, China's pre capita GDP or income was about $150 when American GDP or per capita GDP was about $20,000. And today, China's GDP per capita is about $10,000, still about one-fifth or one-sixth that of the United States, but it's a big uh, increase. And China is very noticeable. You know how many Chinese tourists go abroad every year? About 150 million, right? So if you go to Japan, you find many tourist sites now have Chinese. You go to Paris, go to uh, Louis Vuitton, I was told by my wife, that uh, you know many shop assistants speak Chinese. Yeah. So I think in America, you feel the same thing. Today, as you know, there is significant tension in U.S.-China relationship. When the door first opened, there was hardly any trade between China and the United States. Today, both countries are the largest trading partners of each other. And But today, there's a trade war going on. Yeah. So there's some serious concern and nervousness, I suppose, on both sides uh, with regard to this relationship, especially those who are caught in the middle of This economic tension between the two countries, such as investors, such as exporters on both sides. So
1: you just brought up the trade war and we've talked about reform and opening up, but there's still a large state influence in much of the economy today. How viable do you think the China model is?
0: I actually don't know. There's a China model. What is China model? If you think about government control of economic activities... Then you should know that 40 years ago, when we first got out of the Gobi, or before the opening up, before economic reforms, that was China model. <laughs> All economic economic activities were controlled by the government. So where was China then economically? It was among the poorest countries in the world, right? China at the time had. The agricultural population representing about 83% of the entire population. And uh, that was about, uh, China's population at that time, I think it was about 800 million. So 83%, more than 600 million farmers. American agricultural population was about less than 5% of the entire population. And that gives you some idea how backward... Uh, China's economy was. It yeah. was mostly agrarian, and we couldn't produce enough to feed ourselves. That was the old system. So how did China develop in the past 40 years? It's by abandoning the old system. It's by going into a market economy. It is by allowing people to set up their own businesses and uh, to uh, do basically whatever they want. So today, the private sector accounts for two-thirds of the Chinese economy, and that is the major engine for economic growth. The state-owned sector remains very massive, but uh, they're also very inefficient. And uh, therefore, I think the future for China's continued economic growth is really further reforms to reduce the weight of the state-owned sector and to really develop the private sector
1: I, I'm not sure everyone uh, working in government in this in this city necessarily agrees with that um, uh, that perspective I mean everyone we have made in China 2025 we have a um, you know more and more sort of industrial uh, industrial policies tr- trying to build up certain parts of uh, uh, the this, this state-owned economy so
0: um, I'm not suggesting that the government, Doesn't have a role to play in economic development. For many of the infrastructure projects, the private sector typically would not be able to do them. You know, if you build a high speed rail system, I don't think the private sector will be able to do it. You know, China has probably 80% of the hundred longest bridges in the world. Those things are necessarily done, I think, by the government. And to their credit, they have done a lot of it. But I think in competitive industries, there is not much of a role for the government. The reason for that is, if you really want to be competitive, especially worldwide, not only in domestic market, but in the world market, then you should allow the poor performing firms to fail. State-owned company, almost by definition, cannot fail. because the government will always stand behind them. So you can't develop efficiency in that regard.
2: You have bought out several companies from traditionally state-run companies. What were some of the challenges these companies faced going into more market-oriented spaces than they were used to?
0: When I was a co-managing partner of TPG Asia, which used to be known as Newbridge Capital, we bought control of a nationwide bank. This is an American company buying control of a nationwide bank in China. And the bank, Shenzhen Development Bank, had 300 branches throughout the country. It was government-controlled. It was almost broken. It was certainly a problem bank. At the time, the capital ratio of that bank was dominantly 2.3%. This was 2004. The capital requirement by regulators worldwide at the time was 8%. In truth, they hit so many bad loans, if they fully write off the bad loans, their capital would be negative. The bad loan ratio, as reported, was 11.4% in 2004. The actual was twice as bad. The company, of course, was not making money And we took over that bank and in about five years, we turned around that bank. So that capital ratio was increased to 10% or more than 10%. And our bad loan ratio came down from nominally 11.4%, actually twice that uh, that bad, to uh, 63 basis points. Our profitability came up from almost nothing to $1 billion per year. We invested about $150 million. And for our stake, we sold for $2.4 billion. Eventually we sold control to PI Insurance Group. And the lesson from that experience is that a state-owned bank was very broken, was not getting anywhere, was technically insolvent, but when we walked into there we saw so many low hanging fruits Mm. there were so many inefficiencies so eventually we were able to improve the risk management system so the bank would not throw money away by booking bad loans and that's how we turned it around at the time banking was almost a license to print money because at that time interest rates in China was controlled for a bank there was a ceiling to the lending rate. There was a floor to the deposit rate. So the spread is like 3.5%, among the highest in the world. So as long as you don't throw money away, you ought to be able to make money. But the, the problem is that there was so little risk control that the banks would make loans, but they wouldn't be able to get the loans back. If you lose the principal, obviously, you will lose money. So all we did was to tighten the risk management so that we don't make bad loans. We developed a credit culture so that the committee, our credit committee, would review the credit worthiness of the borrower as opposed to through relationships, through backdoor. Mm -hmm. And we took away the decision-making power to make loans from the frontline officers. So you can have a client relationship, but you can't decide whether or not to make right. him a loan. That's how we turn around that bank.
2: So what was the deal dynamic like? I, I can't imagine the government just handing it over this valuable asset to you.
0: Uh, at the time, the government was actually very reform-minded. In 2002, 2003, China went through the entire banking restructuring process. So all the large banks, for example ICBC Bank of China CCB were all restructured and eventually they carved out their balance into the AMCs asset management companies and they cleaned up their balances and they brought in foreign capital from the likes of ourselves and then all the all of them went public you know in Hong Kong and in the United States now all of them are public companies they invited independent directors to the board to help them improve the management. So by and large, I think today's banking system in China is quite well capitalized and reasonably well run.
2: But was was it dealing with the government throughout the transaction um, as pleasant as you just made it? Or was there bureaucracies you have to deal with?
0: Today? Well, for details, you have to wait for my uh, next book, which uh, <laughs> is in the process of being put together. Oh, wow. But... Uh, like everything in China, it was very complicated. We started to negotiate to acquire control of Shenzhen Development Bank, SDB, in May of two thousand five uh, 2002. We didn't sign the definitive documents until June of 2004. We didn't close the transaction until December the 30th, 2004. So it took 30 months uh, two and a half years to put that particular deal together. We had some ups and downs with the local government in Shenzhen. They were supportive. Then there were problems. Then they were supportive. And we had the support from regulators in Beijing all along, from the central bank, from CBRC, China Banking Regulatory Commission, all along. But it was a very difficult process. After 30 months, we got that deal done. And we consider ourselves to be very lucky we remain the only foreign investor to have ever controlled a nationwide bank mm-hmm. you know thinking about how china market has opened over time today if a chinese investor wants to control a nationwide bank in america that's totally not possible it has never been possible right at the time an american company could control a nationwide bank in China, made a lot of money out of it. And I also remember at the time, the second largest telecom operator in China was an American company called UT Starcom, which had about seventy million customers just below China Mobile, but above China Unicom. Mm-hmm. So at the time China was really making effort to open up, of course, for Chinese investor to control a telecom operator in America is totally impossible then or today so those reform measures opening up uh, did benefit foreign investors but it also benefited the Chinese economy you know the bank became very profitable in five years we tripled quadrupled our assets and made it very very profitable
1: to what extent do you think the U.S. complaints that are driving
0: the trade war are justified? Trade, from the point of view of The Economist, trade is better than no trade. More trade is better than less trade. Adam Smith established that a long time ago. And if you look at the history of trade, which of course goes back to antiquity. Before Adam Smith, it was really mercantilism. You believed, or our ancestors believed, that selling was good and buying was bad, and that's how Opium War started, right? Uh, Britain was not buying enough from China. So they decided, well, to make up for the trade deficit, they should sell something to the Chinese to get them hooked on the product. And that was opium. So I think, obviously, there are defects in the system. And there are defects under WTO. And there's no denying that America is running a very large deficit with uh, China. And there's a desire to perhaps improve the trade relationship between the two countries. And there's also a desire to reduce the trade deficit. And I fully understand it. But I think that protectionism doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help China for sure, but it doesn't help the United States Mm. uh, in this particular case. And if you think that the trade practices are unfair, that is exercised by China, then you will have to look at China's trade relationship, not only with the United States, but also with other countries. If you look at the 10 top trading partners of China, one of which you can take out, that's Hong Kong. Hong Kong is considered part of China. But the other nine top trading partners, the United States, is the only one running a very large trade deficit. And the others, including the Western allies, allies of the United States, including Germany, Korea, Japan, Australia, they all run a very large trade surplus with China. So if you say the trade practice is unfair, how come all these other countries are running a big trade surplus with China? And if you look at the true cost from the point of view of any economist of a trade deficit, it really has to do with spending more than you, uh, certainly more than you, you, you save, but it is basically spending expenditure, domestic expenditure, including consumption, including investments, exceeding GDP. In the past 20 years, America's domestic expenditure has always exceeded GDP by anywhere between 3% and 6%. And when American economy is very hot, the trade deficit goes up because spending goes up. Yeah. The time when American trade deficit has come down is 2008, in the middle of financial crisis. Yeah. It came down from six percent to three percent of GDP. So that's the root cause of trade deficit. Yeah, and uh, very few people recognize it. And I wrote an article published in the current issue of the of Foreign Affairs, uh, entitled "Unwinnable Trade War." And I provided all the data to analyze this. And I think that uh, it would be good for the two countries to reach some kind of a trade agreement. And uh, I think it would be good for China to open up further to American products. In fact, my thinking is both countries should simply remove all trade barriers and have equal access to each other's markets. And that would be the best. But I think on China's side, The criticism is very justified against subsidies to state-owned companies. And uh, I think that China, for its own benefits, should engage in economic reforms, as we discussed, to downsize its state-owned sector and to open up the market even further and to provide better protection for intellectual properties, all of which will be good. For China's trading partners, not only the United States, but all the other trading partners in the world, all of them will be good for China as well.
3: Hey listeners, Jen here. I run SubChina Direct, SubChina's consulting and expertise marketplace. We help you solve all your China business problems by connecting you with China leading experts and consultants in China and around the world. A client of ours is a New York-based fintech startup focused on the peer-to-peer lending space. You may have even read on subchina.com in our recent article called The Final Meltdown, P2P in China in 2020, that the space essentially is under severe regulatory duress. Nonetheless, our client knows that the second largest economy and one day inevitably to become the first largest economy, she cannot ignore the China P2P market to achieve true global success. So after learning about her specific needs and objectives, SubChina Direct paired her with a Hong Kong-based financial services consulting firm that was first able to provide a top-down view of the industry and competitive landscape. Following that, we connected the client to a Shanghai-based executive, formerly a VP at China's largest fintech startup, who facilitated on-the-ground meetings with regulators, peer organizations, and also introduced her to her first China-based hires. If you've got aspirations or challenges related to doing business in China, SubChina Direct will help you identify and vet qualified consultants. Our network of professionals and experts cover all industries, all functions, and all regions within China. Don't waste another day in looking for the right support. You can find it now at subchina.direct. I
2: want to come back to education before we wrap up. About 37,000 Chinese students are currently in the States for education purposes. From my personal experience studying there a few years ago, um, it seemed like this generation of Chinese students in the U.S. aren't as politically aware.
0: When I first went to Taiwan in 1989, I was struck by the fact that most people were so apolitical Mm-hmm. They didn't really care about politics, whereas people my generation in China really care about politics. And I came to the conclusion that if life is very good, then you don't care about politics anymore because there's not much that you want to change. Sure. right? If the life is not very good, you really care about politics because there are so many things you think that you can change to improve the life of the people. You know, I, uh, I'm i not suggesting that people should not get, uh, I if not involved in politics, at least be interested in politics. And that's certainly not me, not many people I know, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing.
2: Do you worry that the propaganda machine is getting to us more easily?
0: No. There's a paradox that I have uh, observed. In the more authoritarian system, Few people criticize the government, but few people believe the government. You know, my generation grew up being very skeptical of whatever the government says. And if you read China's social media, there are so many questions whenever the government says something, and by and large, they really don't believe. And sometimes the rumors are are ridiculous, and yet they believe the rumors. So that's uh, somewhat ironic. The more uh, you want to control the information, the less people believe what you say. In a democracy, many people criticize the government, and many people also believe the government because you think that the information is flow, uh, information flow is free, and you can get all the information. And therefore, you try to believe uh, things that you hear. So the fact that you don't have free access to information doesn't necessarily mean that you stop making judgments. You stop questioning things. You stop to become uh, skeptical. In my experience, is you become more skeptical. You question even more. You try to learn about facts even more. So this is what I call the paradox. I'm not so worried about it. In this world, as I just mentioned, 150 million Chinese go abroad as tourists. Yeah. And outside of China, you have free access to everything you like to, to know, you know, not only in English or in foreign languages, but also in Chinese.
2: But not a lot of people really
0: care. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. Not everybody is politically conscious. Not everybody cares. It doesn't really matter. You know, if they're happy with their lives and if they really don't care about politics, I consider that to be a sign of social progress as opposed to be a real problem. But the elite would care. So
1: you just mentioned when young people are not happy, they tend to care a lot about politics. Well, you've been living in a city for the past few decades that has seen a real protest-led movement. Um, How does your experience inform your views on the current issues around Hong Kong protests?
0: I think to aspire for democracy is very justified anywhere in the world. But Hong Kong is a very peculiar situation. I published an article in the Financial Times back in September, in which I went back to the history of how universal suffrage was introduced, how it was rejected. And I asked the first question, since the handover of 1997, what freedom have we lost in Hong Kong? Hong Kong is considered one of the most free societies in the world. And our way of life has now changed since 1997. If you look at the representation of the government since the handover, it actually has changed, but for the better. Right? Under the British rule, Her Majesty appointed the governor, and that was it. And today, we have a legico, half of which was directly elected, 70 members. 29 members of the 70-member legico are opposition leaders. They bicker so much, so almost nothing gets... Pass. there's gridlock in Hong Kong as in the United States and uh, elsewhere and the CE chief executive is elected by an election committee of which all legal members are members and of course that's not democracy that's not universal suffrage system it's 1200 people elect the CE but that I would say is at least much better than the British system. On August 31st, 2014, the National People's Congress, as required by the basic law, which is the constitution in Hong Kong, decided to introduce universal suffrage to Hong Kong. Starting from 2017, one person, one vote for the CE and one person, one vote Subsequently, for the entire LegCo, where the consensus broke down was over the nominating process for candidates to stand for election. The NPC's decision was for the nominating committee to nominate the candidates by a majority vote. But the opposition said no, because the majority are pro-Beijing and want everybody to be able to stand for election, the government eventually compromised to, through, to, to uh, adopt the so-called, uh, election reform package or to democratize the nomination process by number one, to reduce the representation of certain sectors which are known to be pro-Beijing, such as farmers and fishermen in the nominating committee. Number two, to allow minority to select minority votes, to select the candidates as opposed to requiring a majority vote. And number three, to allow at least one member of the opposition to become a candidate. In spite of that, the package was vetoed by the LegCo, by the pan-Democrats. I thought that was a huge mistake because the policy of the opposition was all or nothing. Either you give us a perfect, true democracy system, or we just want to keep the status quo. We just wrote down this particular package. Now, if you look at the history of how China has opened up over time, you would find that the door was opened a crack initially, and then it gradually opened more and more. You should allow the door of democracy to open And then you fight to open it wider and wider. To keep it shut, I think it's a huge mistake. I think that uh, what started as a protest, peaceful protest against extradition bill, eventually turned into violence, destruction of properties, and chaos. The radicals targeted anybody they don't like and anybody disagreeing with them, including anything related to the mainland, anybody speaking Mandarin, uh, Bank of China, ATMs and branches were destroyed, set on fire. One person, Annie Wu, said publicly this was the owner, partial owner of Maxim Group said, you know, this extreme actions are not representative of Hong Kong. And then all her shops were smashed. Even though the company is 50% owned by Jardines, 150 of them, Starbucks are smashed. When the prime minister of Singapore said something about Hong Kong, then Development Bank of Singapore's branches are smashed or sprayed with graffiti with curse words against the prime minister. So this kind of extreme behavior violence, and destruction properties, remind me very much of the cultural revolution, when Red guards did similar things yeah. in the name of revolution. And now, the black shirts, the radicals, do it in the name of freedom, and they both claim very high ideals, but they should understand that freedom is to allow everybody to speak. And I remember that uh, Evelyn Hall said, a British author, said to Voltaire at one time, I disapprove what you say, but I will defend to death your right to say it. And that's the true meaning of freedom. And I hope that people understand it so that we can true freedom in Hong Kong, that everybody... Can continue to speak their mind, which Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, people have been able to do so. Until, I must say, more recently.
2: Well, thanks so much for coming on to China Econ Talk.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Tsai Sinica Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week.
3: Yeah, look, 我扔开